The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. In all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. Welcome to the House of Roll. The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? It's time for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. And welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. I hope you're enjoying this last three-day weekend of summer. Labor Day usually marks the official, quote-unquote, end of summer. But California, in its usual contrarian way, uh, we've had two weeks of fall weather, and and Labor Day uh, it now marks the return of summer. We're expecting a heat wave. So... But we all know, those of us who uh, live in California and love California know that Indian summer is really our best season. So much for the the holiday weekend. Um, I'm trying to avoid the shopping centers. They are crowded. Um, And I look at those parking lots and I go, there's nothing I need that badly. So, um, in the meantime, uh, we're going to deviate a little bit this week from the normal pattern. I'm not going to deal with the numbers this week. Um, it's a holiday. It's been a very emotional and difficult week. It's been a week in which this country needs to stop for a moment and take stock. And that's what John Senator McCain, in the careful planning of his own memorial, was trying to do. It wasn't about him. It was still about country first. So... For those of us who ascribe to the founding values of the Declaration of Independence that were later enshrined in the Constitution, the freedom to strive for the ideals of our forefathers, freedom, human rights, opportunity, democracy, and equal justice under the law, those are the principles under which this country was founded by a group of people who ascribed to what is called classic British liberalism, people who believed in free enterprise, free trade, personal responsibility that was punctuated with compassion and coupled with a strong sense of national identity and the need to defend even the fledgling little 13-colony nation that was born 240 years ago. I usually hike early on Saturday mornings, but I'm dealing with a little bit of a back problem at the moment. So yesterday found me at about 6.30 in the morning in front of the television watching John McCain's funeral. It was an assemblage of American political dynasties and American political power and American political prestige. It was white it was male. It was graying and in off many cases thinning. And it stood in stark contrast to the Naval Academy Glee Club that performed so beautifully. That Glee Club was full of youth. It was young. It was half men 
and half women. It was diverse. That was the future of America. Those were the young people who worked their tails off. Getting into Annapolis is harder than getting into Harvard. Those people worked their tail off in a highly competitive environment for the opportunity to serve their country. And they are the America of tomorrow, the future of America. I, you know, Twitter, Twitter is to me a really good thing and a really bad thing. It's addicting. You start playing with it and, and all of a sudden you realize an hour has passed and you've, you've, you've it's literally a waste of time. But, but Twitter has also become a place where people go to bully. I, I don't know if Twitter went away tomorrow, with the exception of um, emergency uh, responders needing to reach many people quickly, would we miss it? Especially as it has more and more advertising mixed in. But in any case, I was kind of astounded that uh, quite a number of people found Megan McCain's comments yesterday to be anything but the heartfelt heart-wrenching sorrow of a daughter who had just lost her father and who had, through most of her adult life, had to listen to people both laud him and revile him. It's really hard to be a child listening to people say really horrible things about your parent and feel you have little recourse. Um, but the fact of the matter is that I agreed with what Megan McCain said, and I think she had the essence of her father. America is, yes, it is. It doesn't need to boast. Everybody knows. The world knows. Our enemies know. We don't need to boast. Sometimes quiet is the strongest message. I agreed with her at that point. And America does not need to be great again because America is great for all our faults, for all the things we yet aspire to in the words of the Declaration and the Constitution. We continue to try to evolve to be a more perfect union. Nobody, nobody says we've reached it. But many people still are striving to get there. But America is great. It's not just that we're the largest economy in the world. It's that we invest our treasure and our blood and our hopes in the rest of the world. And that was very clear yesterday, not just in Meghan McCain's words, but in everyone's. In, it, in, in the entire structure of that service. America has been, the United States of America, has been the world's dominant force for good since this experiment in representative democracy began 242 years ago. So we don't need to make America great again. 
we need to strive to make America greater yet. I'm an optimist, not a pessimist. I always want to see that glass half full rather than half empty. We can be better. And if we got off Twitter, we'd probably see more of our own better angels. Now, I say that, but, you know, it's like the old saying I know as a parent, it's easier for me to say it than do it, because the last thing I did before we came on the air was check Twitter. But that funeral yesterday was intended not to memorialize, not to aggrandize, not to make a bigger figure out of Senator McCain than he had been in life. It was a message to America, from Joe Lieberman to George Bush and Barack Obama, there was one theme, the senator's love of country, his sense of honor, his ability to sacrifice, and yes, his conscience, his ability to actually stop and say, I was wrong, I did something wrong. And the political leadership of the United States of America sat quietly and they listened. And we'll be back in just a moment with the most important question that John McCain left us with. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. And when we went to break, I was asking what was the essential question that came out of John McCain's National Cathedral Memorial Service yesterday, and that is, did the political establishment of the United States of America only hear the words spoken, or did they also feel that the late senator's passion to serve a cause greater than himself was something they needed to think about in their own lives, in their own politics? Senator McCain wanted his memorial to serve as an example of how great the United States is when ordinary citizens come together and risk something of themselves in order to create a more perfect union. And yes, the other thing that he emphasized, and George Bush really helped him out with it, is that we are all, every one of us, ordinary citizens, and as George Bush was sitting there passing out lifesavers to his wife and and Michelle Obama um, in the front row, it was a long service. We are all ordinary citizens in the end. So Congress will reconvene on Tuesday. We can watch. We can watch to see if the senators carefully choreographed farewell, which was incredibly draining for his widow and children. We can watch to see if any hearts on either side of the aisle, on either sides of the political divide, were changed. Republican former President George W. Bush and Democratic former President Barack Obama certainly tried to get people to that point in the center where America flourishes. We'll see next week if they succeeded or if only in that moment or if we can move forward with less acrimony and more purpose. You know, it it frustrates me that Congress has been 
nothing but a debating society when they run for the cameras. Can this previous week's events soften the bitter political calculus of our time? Because he asked them to. Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer walk together to put a wreath in front of John McCain's casket. Inspired by that request, Paul Ryan had picked up the phone and asked Nancy Pelosi to join him in placing the House's wreath. Can that, those moments of bipartisanship, those moments of humanity, can they change the bitter political calculus of our time? Because let me tell you, the American people, you and I, are not benefiting from that political that political bitterness because what it's doing is it's preventing the work that needs to be done on our behalf from getting done. And, and I find that, as a businesswoman who knows time is money, I find that so frustrating. And as an American who bleeds red, white, and blue, I just despair that, yes, as, as the commercial just said, we're a nation, the, the founders, 240 years ago, they had such um, a, a sense of um, balance of what it would take to preserve a democracy, um, that they wanted the people's house, that's the, the House of Representatives, to represent the people directly. And then they started in the Senate wanting it to be as one of the founders said, and I'm sorry, I don't remember which one it was. I think it was Jefferson who might have said it, um, who didn't even get involved in writing the Constitution, that the intent of the Senate was to pour, or maybe it was Hamilton, it was, um, maybe it was Hamilton, that the intent was to pour some of the tea into the saucer in order to cool it. So, the Senate was intended to be a debating, uh, a, deba- a debating society, but a debating society with the intent of reaching goals, of making law, of finding ways to, to create revenue to run the government eventually, not with the speed and the coonskin caps that, we, uh, that actually existed in the House, but that was the intent. And the Electoral College was intended for the states, not the, the people could vote, could make their, their wishes known, but it was in fact the state governments who were intended to elect the president. All of that done to balance the direct, direct and fleeting moments of the people, or as somebody in that time said, the, you know, the, the mob, and, and the needs of a longer term a governing majority, okay? And so um, they did not anticipate. They anticipated compromise and uh, the checks and balances, et cetera, written into the Constitution. They, they were working very, very hard because they had seen it in Britain to avoid the bitter political calculus that we now find ourselves embraced in. And one of the reasons that that may be is the change in the nature of who is um, 
elected to represent us to go to Washington to be part of the government. In um, 1955 or 56, I'm sorry, I don't remember the exact date, 64% of the members of Congress had served in the military. Currently, it is less than 20%. And there is a group out there, it's called With Honor, and you might want to check it out. It don't, doesn't, doesn't require you to compromise your party affiliations at all. They're a group of veterans, Republicans and Democrats, running in different states with different platforms, but with a common sense and a common set of sense of purpose about you know, the, the need for uh, compromise um, in, in gover- and bipartisan governing. Or as I like to say, I'd like us to reach a postpartisan point in government governing. But while we think about people who wore the uniform, if you go back and you think that Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, George H.W. Bush all wore the uniform of the nation in times of war and with only the exception of Reagan actually saw combat. George W. Bush did serve, but he served in the reserves uh, and, and saw no combat duty. But those presidents learned those presidents learned the lessons that John McCain sought to demonstrate again in the orchestration of his own memorial service this week, and which which is. Um, a a continuing theme in his books, in two presidential campaigns, etc. And that is, it is country first. Okay, all of those men who served in combat knew it is country first. It is personal courage. It's the willingness to sacrifice. To experience hardship, and sometimes hardship is having somebody in the media tell you that you're wrong about something and you don't agree with it. The other thing that you learn in the military, in a combat situation especially, is the importance of working with it as a team. Teamwork matters. Teamwork matters in my life as well. But teamwork is the essence of what you learn in the United States military, especially when you're under fire. I don't know who said it, but I know it's true. There are no atheists in a foxhole, nor are there any racists in a trench. So we have to ask ourselves, did those shared experiences in service of the nation make them better leaders in peacetime? Were they able to fight hard for principle? I think you can say that Truman and Eisenhower and Kennedy um, and Reagan and George H.W. Bush all fought for principles. And did they understand in the midst of some very, very difficult contested battles that there's a difference between a differing in policy, being political rivals for a single office, or actually being enemies of one another. And none of those presidents that I just enumerated thought the guy they ran against was their enemy. None of them loved the press because the press is always there to show up 
the shortcomings of a president, not to laud their accomplishments. It's the nature of the relationship and the nature of the beast. But a free press is not the enemy. It is our friend. It is what illuminates for us what is actually happening. And it gives us, you and me, a voice in government. And no, there were no opinion polls in the time of Abraham Lincoln. But there were weekly newspapers in which people wrote and readers responded in writing and were published the following week. And we still call that letters to the editor. And you know what? I sometimes find I read the letters to the editor in um, the L.A. Times quite frequently. And I find there are some really good ideas. It takes longer to do than Twitter, but... There are, in a free press, ways to talk to your representatives. And we'll be back in just a moment with some happier thoughts. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back. So, I'm not quite sure that, you know, what's going to happen next week, um in in the House and Senate, whether any of those messages of national unity, of country first, of sacrificing, of, of the team, you and me, you and me, we are that team as well as the people we elect, okay, to represent us. Whether any of us are going to benefit next week, because there are certainly enough problems that um, members of Congress could be working on. Uh, First and foremost, there is an $897 billion appropriation bill. That That is the part of the budget not covered by Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security. Okay, that's what we call Uh, Those last three are what we call mandatory spending, and they are not included. The $897 billion appropriation package is the discretionary portion of the budget. Now, I do agree with President Trump that you cannot just send him an omnibus bill, that you the the purpose of Congress is to appropriate money to specific government functions uh, with specific plans for their uh, for the use of that money. And all too often we just say, oh, we're going to have a continuing resolution and we're just going to go on spending. We're not going to look critically at what we're spending that money on. So um, the president said I, he signed the last one. He said, I'm not signing another one. So there is $897 billion in appropriations that has passed out of the United States Senate. The House is now faced with the challenge of it passing its own appropriation bills if the Freedom Caucus will only try to stop running for the camera, for the cameras and microphones and sit down and do the work of the people. We could actually get some of those appropriation bills through the House. Then we will have to have a conference committee between the House and the Senate in order to um, iron out any differences. And then you'll have to have a final vote in both the House and the Senate. And all of this, ladies and gentlemen, needs to happen between September 7th and September 30th when the government fiscal year ends and the country runs out of money. So unless you would like a government shutdown on October 1st, this is the place we need to put our focus. 
And I don't know if we got there because those primary uh, primaries that just concluded last week, can you believe that we are going to have a national election in 66 days and we just last week in the third most populous state in the nation had a primary? Okay. And the primaries were base elections. The right went right and the left went to Bernie Sanders. Um, I think we're going to see... Um, a really interesting election, specifically in Florida, um, and and I have a sense of how it's going to turn out, but we'll see if I'm right or wrong. Uh, we'll talk about it afterwards. Um, what concerns me, as I'm sitting here saying, we, we need to pass an appropriation bill. We got like three and a half weeks to get that done, okay? What concerns me is that... Um, we're in a situation in which neither side want, seems to want to give an inch um, on what has always made this country work best and what the founding fathers were, were trying to get to with a delicate balance and that we refer to in civics classes as checks and balances. And what that means in our current electoral system and why I um, uh, think I know what's going to happen in Florida, but I'm not sure, is it all depends on the middle. The, the, the biggest party in California today is not the Democratic Party. It's the NPPs, no party preference. And, and you have to, you can't get those people to come out and vote in a general election we're using the same tactics you used in the primary. You can't, it's not a base. If you go to the base, then the center does not vote anymore. We've learned this. We need to overcome that. We need to fight elections, general elections and primaries over the issues. We need to battle. It needs to be a battle of ideas, not of insults. So one of the battles we are going to see starting on Tuesday is one I am looking forward to um, in, in some ways, and that is there will be a battle over the Kavanaugh nomination to the Supreme Court. The American Bar Association came out with its findings this week and found um, Judge Kavanaugh to be highly qualified I mean, he got the highest rating the American Bar Association can give. And remember, he has been on the federal judiciary for 12 years. There aren't a lot of surprises here. He has written 300 opinions on the federal, on the most important and influential federal district court, um, a circuit court in the circuit court in Washington, D.C., and he has only 10 reversals. That's a hell of a record. He's a great legal scholar. You know how we know that? Elaine, Elena Kagan, the last Obama appointee to the court, hired Judge Kavanaugh as a part-time faculty member at Harvard, at Harvard Law School, the best law school in the country, when she was the dean there. The man is, um, his friends say, a lawyer's lawyer. And you know, the use of, of, of musings of a paper he wrote 10 years ago um, as a cludgeon, as a cludgeon is the cheapest kind of base political um, 
bell ringing that we can, that I can think of. And we'll be back in just a moment to talk a little bit more about why Judge Kavanaugh needs to be part of the Supreme Court. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. And when we went to break, um, we were talking a little bit about Judge Kavanaugh and whether or not his uh, upcoming Senate hearing is going to be a political circus. It is going to be, I, I feel sorry for Judge Kavanaugh. I feel sorry for his wife and daughters. Here is a guy who is the, an upstanding member of his community, who is the coach of the girls' basketball team, who is, um, you know, a dedicated public servant, who is, at, by everybody's estimation, a lawyer's lawyer. Now, you would think that would be a slam dunk for the Supreme Court, wouldn't you? <laughs> and he's turned into a political pawn. First, um, there is still the Merrill, Merritt Garland um, splinter uh, in the Democratic hide. And and I, I, I question whether or not um, if they got their way, we would ever have a ninth, a ninth um, justice on the Supreme Court in at least before 2021. Um, and no, we can't run the country that way. And there is what, you know, I keep hearing um, commercials on both sides. I hear, heard some really wonderful things. J.D. Vance, who is somebody I really admire, um, who is a up by the bootstrap um, Alger his story of um, of personal and professional success coming from a home um, where there wasn't even always food on the table. J.D. Vance um, actually took a couple of classes from Kavanaugh and has, for the first time in his um, not political career, done a commercial on behalf of the judge. But there is this term that we toss around and we say he's a conservative judge well what do we really mean by that we've turned it into a uh, into a pejorative when in fact we want conservative judges we want judges who look at the constitution look at the laws passed by the legislature and congress and say did they stay within the limits of their constitutional authority if yes, then that's the law. If no, well, then we need to instruct them as we're striking down what they've done, how to make the law they want to pass consti- pass constitutional muster. That's a conservative judge. It doesn't mean that he hates women, that he's going to overturn Roe v. Wade. My God, he couldn't go home if he did that. Um, it It means that he doesn't read the polls and make judgments that change the law that change that that exceed the authority that the court is granted under the constitution which is to interpret law not to make law the idea of that the progressive the so-called living constitutionalists have on the other side is and we call them liberals but they're not just liberals they are not just progressives they believe that the court can overrule the judgment of the legislature and the Constitution does not allow for that. 
There is no right of privacy written into the Constitution. We're going to find out that you can't change the immigration system by executive order. Uh, the last decision on DACA that continued it, the judge actually said he had real questions about its constitutionality. So I think the Kavanaugh battle is intended to do more what I fear the most, encourage a political climate so divided that only the base comes out in November to vote. And Vince is looking at me saying, I have a question. So Vince, what's your question? Okay, getting back to uh, some of these uh, races that are that are coming up, the Florida gubernatorial race is one that I think is really interesting, and I'd love to get your take on it, because we have a very progressive left-wing candidate versus a very right-wing Trumpian candidate, and it feels like this is a battle of extremes, and... I'm wondering what you think Florida voters are going to end up deciding. There's there's going to be a big moderate middle that's going to have to pick between these two extremes. And I mean, for, and I know there's been some some bad blood out there, a lot of you know racial insensitive quotes going on and stuff. But aside from that, what do you think the 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 moderate voters are are going to end up going with in Florida? I think it's like California, the moderate middle, the biggest party in California, the NPPs, to which I belong, would would like a third option. No. <laughs> I think that's what's going to happen in Florida. I think we could have an upset in Florida. Um, if you look at, at, um, at the Democratic nominee, he has some pretty... Um, far out uh, positions on wages and and um, publicly paid for health care, et cetera. But he's a pretty compelling person. I mean, if, you know, I've seen him do a couple of national interviews and you could you can't help but like this guy. I mean, and and DeSantis is um, has wrapped himself in the mantle of Donald Trump. And, um, you know, Rick Scott, who is the current governor of, of Florida, for whom I have tremendous respect. You know, um, there are a lot of people who say things about him. But when you want to talk about really fixing our health care system from a businessman's point of view, he has great ideas. Um, he has been a very effective governor and he has um, he's the most popular politician in in Florida, and there's a reason. Um, he's done some really courageous things in a gun-happy state. Um, moms and PTA members like him. So I think the turnout for in the, in the race for the, um, for the Senate seat may well determine who the next governor of Florida is. And it's quite possible that we will see a larger vote in the Senate race than we do in um, in that gubernatorial race. But you know, that's one of the reasons I said I have I have I think I know what might happen, but I'm not sure at this point. I want to take a position. I'm going to wait and see what some of the polling and some of their issues are. 
Um, but I do not believe it is impossible to see the Democrat win in Florida. Oh, and you said you think it depends a lot on, on Rick Scott, the turnout for Rick Scott. Mm-hmm. Now, would that tip the scales more toward the the liberal candidate, you think? I'm not sure because Rick Scott is... Um, is is like me he's a classic liberal he's a free enterprise free trade guy he is not um um he's he's um racially sensitive he's done a great job with um natural natural disasters and being present and being helpful and getting help to people um he did a tremendous job of um, finding ways to uh, quickly house and get ed- schooling and jobs, et cetera, for Puerto Rican refugees. Uh, and they are U.S. citizens. So, um, a, you know, he, and, and he's very popular with those people. So we will see um, whether his pro- popularity, you know, whether DeSantis decides to, to ride um, uh, Scott's coattails. Or Trump's coattails. And I think that could be a deciding factor. Yeah, I think ultimately these both of these candidates, it's going to be a race to the middle. But both of them, you know, that's the irony is will the middle believe them because their their uh, primary campaigns were so polarized. It's like, you know, it's like Alexandria um, Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, she won that seat with 11 percent of the district's voters coming out to vote. And there's no Republican opposition. That's why I say she's won the seat. Uh, And she's completely unqualified to serve in Congress. I mean, you know, so if we run base primaries, um, the middle that 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 silent majority that Richard Nixon Um, identified is not going to come out to vote and 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 we've seen that in florida in the fact that the puerto ricans um have not we thought it would be a big change that they would come out and and register to vote and that that might drive a real change in politics in florida but we haven't seen that manifest itself and i think that's because they look at both sides and they say What's in this for me? And we'll be back in just a moment with some closing thoughts. It's amazing how fast this hour goes. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back with just a couple of minutes to go. Um, I had hoped to talk about tariffs today, but I think we'll hold that off for next week. I'll leave you with a te- teaser. Why would anybody want to bully poor Canada? I mean, Canada have the longest, uh, and the United States have the longest undefended border in the world. And for almost two centuries now, since the late 19th century, there's been nobody better when you're in the trenches than the first guys who come running to help are the Canadians. They have sacrificed every bit as much as we did in Afghanistan. So I just won't, don't know why you want to bully the Canadians. But I tell you what, we can talk about that next week.
In the mean in the meantime, we have another issue closer to home. You know, we have a homelessness crisis in the state of Cal in the United States. We also have a homelessness crisis with all capitals in California. In Los Angeles, San Jose and and San Francisco, more than 5,000 people, including children, every night sleep on the pavement. I think that is abhorrent and completely unacceptable. I'm not alone. Some of um, Silicon Valley's uh, developers have reached out to say, if you'll give us the old um, San Jose City Hall Annex, which is your intended for demolition to be left for a future build of county buildings, um, we'll, we can, with private money, uh, build some homeless shelter. And the county said no. The county would rather go with a big plan to build on county land, on, on school district land, that will take years to bring to fruition. I got to tell you, winter's coming in about two months. And so um, I think it's up to us to reach out and, and say to the city and county governments in California that uh, we, have, we have an immediate crisis and all the long-term building plans you want to think about is all well and fine, but we cannot, as a people, in good conscience, have an election about health care for all when people are sleeping on the streets. And I'm going to spend some time this week trying to figure out if I can get a hold of some of these private folks who think we could do something on an interim basis um, and see what what really is possible. And if we turn our attention uh, to the state legislature for just a second and say, for once, they did something right, they eliminated a provision in the housing law that that allowed L.A. City Council uh, members through L.A. City Code to... um, uh, not in my backyard, NIMBY, uh, low-income housing. The state has now come in and said, no, you can't just veto that. You have to have reasons for that. And so I applaud that piece of legislation. We've also heard, um, as we start to tune up for that, get the base fired up, general election, we've heard a lot about the word impeachment over the last week. I'm not going to hypothesize about the what ifs of impeachment um, because as far as I'm concerned, it's just an election year talking point. And the number you need to bear in mind is it will take 67 senators to vote to impeach. It's not going to happen. At this point, there is no, I, I don't see that path. But I wrote a pretty careful piece that helps you to understand why I don't see that path. And you'll find it at reimagineamerica.org. You'll also find a podcast of this radio program. And we'll be back next week with some new ideas and some new guests. And in the meantime, enjoy your Labor Day weekend and have a great week. And think about what you can do for your country. This has been Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum, donate, tell others, and sign up to receive future podcasts. That's reimagineamerica.org. Together, we can 
Reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.